With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. It is Wednesday night. This is Terry. I want to welcome everybody to the show tonight. Um, it, it The sun's shining in Chicago, and that's a good thing. Hopefully around the rest of the world it is, because hopefully summer is on the way. Right now, we are definitely talking about uh, the primaries. Uh, it looks like it probably will be between Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump. However, it's not to say that something might not happen. You know, California, at the convention, it could be something that uh, occur that might change um, the election. So, you know, we're good for we're good for change, especially in this country. We do it all the time. Isn't that right, Michelle? Yep. <laughs> yep. All the time. We're changing. <laughs> we're always changing and evolving, you know. Yep. yep. That's the way to be. So how you doing today? I'm doing good, Terry. How about you? I am tired, Michelle. I am tired. I'm what? tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, besides that, well, hey, I woke up this morning. I'm good. <laughs> And, you know, that's how, that's how I think you like, you know, I mean, that's all good. I'm good, you know. I could go into all this stuff, but it don't matter. I'm good, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. So I know they had here in Chicago today, they were talking about at City Hall, and they were talking about the bathroom issues. Um, I guess um, we'll get to, we'll get the update. I'll have to talk to Kim and see just what happened, because it seems like they just ended a little bit ago, so... And from what I understand, it's an emotional time, so you know we'll see what happens. Well, you know, you you sort of see that that's it's it's for a while. That's what we're going to be hearing, you know, all over the place. They're going to be talking about, um, you know, everyone's trying to push these things through, and they're talking about um, that they're for to protect, you know, people. They try to say a lot of this protect women, but I mean, really, you know, I mean. Women don't have to be protected in the bathroom. In fact, I think that one of the things that I heard, which I thought sounded, which sort of shows how much they don't get it, is like this reporter was saying how they wanted to protect women from men who would pretend. And that shows right there uh, uh, insensitivity to what being transgender is about. It is not pretending, you know. Uh, you know, so the people who are trans using the bathroom are just using the bathroom. The people who um, who aren't the other ones are the other ones. Let me hold on a minute. I see our guest is on the other one. I'll be right back. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, like Michelle was saying, um, it was it, it's interesting that the issue is people using the bathroom. They're afraid men gonna be in the bathroom doing something to to women, but. You have different countless stories of young boys being molested in the men's bathroom or young girls being raped 
in the women's bathroom is not by a woman, you know. But that's just not it's not safe. So for me, it's an easy fix. Most places have more than two bathrooms. One is male, one is men, one is women, one is gender. If you are not LGBTQ, don't go in there and be curious. Don't go in there no matter how long your line is. Stay in your lane over there in the women. Stay in your lane over there in the men. And whoever goes into the, whoever is from the LGBTQ, okay. gender. Um, he will be calling in shortly. He had misplaced. He, you know, we have the the two time number time changes. I think he had looked at the wrong time. But anyhow, he's going to be calling <laughs> in shortly. Okay. Yeah. So. Mhm. Yeah. So no, yeah. I'm saying, just make it three bathrooms. You got men, you got women, you got gender. And I say everybody stays in their lane. No matter how long your line is in women's, you stay in that line. Don't don't get curious and come over here and then complain about the bathroom. Well, you know, the only the only place that it matters is if you have some place where you have, like I've seen the ones where they have multiple um, stalls. But I mean, in my own act of civil disobedience, I've been going in places, and if they've got the bathroom, and the bathroom is just like you know. A bathroom, and it just has one toilet, and one says men and women. I go in whichever one is open. And I know, I mean, you know, the other day I came out of one, and, and it said men, but, you know, it was no different than the one that was women, you know. So, I mean, really, it makes a difference. I could see where, where and it shouldn't. You know, one of the things, like they talk about, because they have urinals. Well, you know what, get rid of urinals, you know. I mean, just have stalls, and you go in and you pee. Well, like you said, I mean, you know, and have more than one. You know, if you have more than one, why can't you just go to whichever one is available? You know, I mean, now they're having changing tables in each one. So just just call it bathrooms and put a vacant and not vacant sign. Yeah, you know, and 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 there you go. Yeah, you know. there you go. It's like that, and then, and folks, it is that simple. Uh-huh. I know people are like, well, I don't want to be in the bathroom. So, okay, so what makes you think they want to be in there with you either? They may be uh-huh. just scared of you as you are them. So, you know, just get real, folks. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, and it's all, the main thing is that it's clean, and, you know, uh, you have toilet paper. Everybody wash your hands when you get ready to leave. And you know what? And if you need to use that air freshener, make sure the air freshener is in there, and we'll all be happy. You know, we'll all be yeah, happy. Yeah, for real. Yeah. Uh, Definitely uh-huh. for real about the air freshener. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, yeah. So, um, okay. Well, I, I, I'm I'm uh, expecting that uh, you might want to do that disclaimer because I think we have a guest. Well, I'm telling you, I'm looking for the disclaimer because I don't seem to have it. Uh, readily available. So, um, I don't know what to do. Uh, I'm trying to see if I can find the the old one. Um, But I guess, you know, I mean, okay, so I'm going to try and do as much as it is from possible that um, the views and opinions on Can We Talk For Real which are the co- um, of a co-host, the guest, it's our own, and we don't tolerate disrespect uh, to anyone. And if you need professional consultation, then you should go get it. Um, and I think that's 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 the Reader's <laughs> Digest version of of a, of a disclaimer. You know, that's the Reader's <laughs> Digest of a disclaimer. I think we're going to have to put it up on our 
put it at the end of our, our, our event so people can read it so they know just to be ahead, you know, in case we can't find it. But I'm in a different place, and I just don't have it have it handy. So there you go. Okay. There you go. <laughs> and then she just told you, your, your opinions are yours. We okay with it, and just don't rain on anybody else's so. Mm-hmm. Right. If you're disrespectful, we're not going to tolerate it. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. So, Michelle, tonight's show, uh, it, it, just like the rest of them, it's going to be powerful. It's going to be mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, yeah, I got a few questions that people are like, I'm going to be listening because I want to hear. Okay, be listening. How about you call And, you know, we, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the guests that we have on tonight, um, he was on before we had a religious program, and it was we weren't able to really talk about it. And I think that it's really important because we are in the month of Ramadan. Um, many people don't know what it is. And I'm going to tell you, I mean, my head is off to the Imam because, you know, to be not only in, in these times to be black, gay, and Muslim, I mean, you know, I mean, it's just like, and, and to stand in your faith. I mean, that you're a warrior. I mean, that's just it. You're just a warrior. Um, so. Exactly. So tell you what, um, I say we go ahead and bring them in and let's start the show. How about you? Okay. That sounds that sounds great because I know he's there. Yep. He's right here with us. How you doing tonight? All right. Salam. How's everyone? Everyone is great. How are you? And happy... Ramadan to you. Ramadan, yes. Yes, and Ramadan Kareem. Everything is well, thank you. First couple of days of Ramadan. It's always the adjustment period for most people. But Mm -hmm. thankfully it's been a very peaceful one, and most people are continuing to send greetings to everyone. So I say send greetings to everyone in listening audience. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's let's do this, Michelle, because like you said, a lot of people don't yeah. understand what it is and, and, and what it means. So can you explain it to us so that uh, you know, even the people who don't comprehend can, can understand just what it is, the importance of it and And you know, and, and you okay. know, before we do that, I mean let can we can we get you to officially tell I mean well, first of all we wanna welcome you. This is Imam Dai Abdullah. And he's out of Washington, D.C., right? Originally from Detroit. Originally from Detroit, but now he's out of Washington, D.C. He is one of, is the Arvis reading? They said now there's five openly gay imams worldwide. Well, there's actually 12 and eight openly gay. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, and so... I want to welcome you. I mean, like I said, I think you're a warrior. And we didn't get a chance to talk about it. And it's important now because, I mean, I, I mean, people don't know what it is. It's like, oh, you know, what does it mean? I told someone today um, that I said, oh, you know, well, we're going into Ramadan. And they go, what's that mean, you know? And, and they sort of like a lot of people don't understand the Islamic faith. They don't understand what it means. I think that this woman thought that, that you know, she should start to be prepared for some type of terrorist attack, and I said, "No, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, a holiday." You know, I said, "It's a holy holiday. It's a month of fasting." But can you explain it to those of us who don't know? 
who aren't okay. familiar with the faith and who don't know. Okay, that's that's not too difficult. Uh, the way I explain it to many people is, uh, particularly in the Western context, that uh, Ramadan is similar to Lent in terms of the Catholics mm-hmm. give up um, a certain foods or certain types of foods, um, and they sort of fast over the 40 days. Well, this is similar. Ramadan is a 30-day period in which uh, people who are Muslim, and we take this to mean Muslims from a very broad understanding, whether you're from the current understanding that's out there of Wahhabism or Salafism, all the way to those who are Sufis on the far extreme who are much more metaphysical and metaphorical in terms of understanding our creation. And so um, what it is is that people, for those 30 days, will uh, abstain from from eating food during daylight hours and also not drinking water. And part of it is to get an individual to understand the, the issues of poverty, the issues of um, not being part of society on the outskirts. And therefore, people tend to donate the monies that they would have used for eating during that time and to donate that to the community to help the impoverished and to help the sick and ailing and those who um, who cannot care for themselves or fend for themselves, sort of like an old-style Social Security system, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, what it is that although during Ramadan people are encouraged to fast, people who cannot fast, say if you're um, a, a woman who's pregnant or a lactating mother or someone who's taking medications that's in, in, you know, important for their health, then they're, they're forgiven the request of fasting because you're not to make your fast something that makes you a burden on the rest of society. Because if you do, then you're taking another personal person out of their fasting to take care of you. Mm-hmm. So uh, the society permits you to do other things in place of it. You can feed another person as, as, a, as a way of absolving yourself of the responsibility or giving money to society as well. So just a wide array of different things. If you can't afford it, then you can do social service things that you can do, feed the homeless, uh, help people in a nursing home, you know, visit the sick, do all kinds of things. It's just a way to show that there's a community connection by one's faith. Now, also in the news right now, and, you know, which I had someone I mean, it's really great that we've been able things make you have these conversations. Many in the African-American community um, were first, when they first think about, about Muslim, people are Muslim, they think about Malcolm X, and now, right now, of course, they're talking about Muhammad Ali. And there is a, there's clearly a difference of people who went through the nation of Islam and those who are who have been in Islamic faith, and and we know that Malcolm X, after a while, after leaving um, the Nation of Islam, he he really started to study the faith and got more into traditional many things that were more traditional teachings of Islam. When you talk yeah. to someone and they come up to you and they go like, "Well, you know, I mean, 
after after you let make sure that they know that no, you're not selling bean pies and you don't have a bow tie. How do you explain <laughs> the difference to them? Yeah. Well, I think is in order to um, I I always start from the position of where they are because I grew up as a young child in Detroit, and one of my um, elder brothers was a member of NOI, so I'm very familiar mm-hmm. with them. When, they, when the first mosque was over on Linwood Avenue mm-hmm. back in the early 60s. So mm-hmm. um, I remember that place. My elder brother took me with him a couple of times, and I was always fascinated to see NOI members, particularly the way in which they were very businesslike and very much about uh, caring for themselves and their community. And, of course, I like the bean pies. We, we can't get around that part. You can't get around but, that. Uh, can't get around that. But um, NOI, because of its origins, which happened in the 1930s in the United States, that it was a different movement. It became more of a race-oriented focus on, on Islam, meaning that uh, the tenets of Islam, which are, to believe in God, to believe that there is a messenger um, that came, and also that there are certain tenets that we believe in as well, that those things were uh, utilized, or those were things that were taught in NOI, but there were also other references that was there, and I believe partially from the information I've read, that due to the use of the Bible, uh, for most blacks in the country at the time, uh, they utilized it also as a way of teaching, too. However, um, at the same time when Warth Dean um, changed and actually did more studies and became more uh, attuned to the more traditional framework that we have today of what Islam is basically coming out of Saudi Arabia and that particular um, teaching, then we started to see a major change However, uh, that also coincided with the influx of Muslims coming from the North African and the Middle East and the Levine, meaning from um, uh, Lebanon, uh, Jordan, Syria, Turkey, places of this nature, and also the Gulf, which came in in the 60s and onwards. But then we also had Muslims coming into the United States. I remember when more Southeast Asians came into the United States back in the 1980s and the 1990s. So now we have Muslims from all over the world in the United States, and they come from a diversity of Islams that have, that have developed from the nascent community in um, Mecca, Medina period, for, you know, 1,450 uh, years ago, up until the current time to where we have an American Islam that is developing mm-hmm. and growing in a more Western sense. No, I I, I, you know, I remember the, the the place on Linwood, and I know that you know, and coming from the same background as you, is going to that to where I saw the Nation of Islam, but I didn't see that you know that faith as something you know. I thought it was like you know there were people from the Middle East or whatever, and then there was us, and so when I decided not to go the path of the Nation of Islam. The thought of following up and learning about it, it was a long time before I circled back to learning, to being interested in, and being curious about that. What took you that direction, well, what path? 
<laughs> well, actually, it wasn't the, that particular episode when I was a young child. Um, after the NOI broke up, basically, and then Warth Dean went in his direction, um, I was aware of the, the changes, but I had actually at that time denounced being religious. And mm. so what I did is that I had actually started studying metaphysics and was on my journey of seeking a different uh, religious path because I felt that as a Christian, I was always supplicating. Uh, whereas when I did get introduced to Islam, and I'll say that in a moment, I found a difference, which was in the way of prayer. Now, I became Muslim in a very unique way. Back in 1982, I had a vision. I was working as a course stenographer for the IRS and traveling around the country and doing all kinds of things. Um, and I had a very good job, made good money, all those types of things, but something you know, sometimes you know when something just doesn't satisfy you, you're not personally satisfied. So I had a vision. I was praying and had a vision to study Chinese. And so that was a rather strange dream to have. And a couple mm-hmm. of days later, while I was meditating, the dream returned and finished off. And I knew I was to study Chinese. So being here in Washington, D.C., I went over to three schools, University of Maryland, they had a part-time program. I wanted something full-time. I went over to G. George Washington University, and they looked at me really strangely, and I'll put it in these terms. It was like, well, uh, Mr. Nick, well, why are you wanting to study Chinese? <laughs> and I was like, well, I know I, I don't want to be there. And then I went over to Georgetown, and literally they said, we've been waiting for you. I'm hmm. like, waiting for me? And they were like, yes. And I did some things, and Nine months later, um, well, a couple of months later, I began studying Chinese there at Georgetown, and nine months after that, I was at Beijing University as an exchange student studying that, studying there. And it was through that process of being there for that year, I got introduced to Islam by some of my ma and, well, they're Hui, they're, they're the ethnic Chinese, and also the Uyghurs, who are the Turkish immigrants that went into Western China several hundred years later after Islam had entered China back in the old 800s, um, common era. And so it was there I got introduced to it. And so some of my classmates would ask me questions and things, and I said, no, I didn't know anything about Islam except for NOI. And they're like, no, 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 the real Islam. And we had many discussions over eating jowza, which is like the, 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 dump, the steamed dumplings, and conversations about Islam. And so um, the, I was invited to go to the, the Cow Street Mosque, which is what it's called there in Beijing, and it was there that I got introduced to Islam. And when I went in for the session, meaning that they did the khutbah or the sermon in Arabic, I hadn't studied Arabic at the time, but when they did it in, in Chinese, in Mandarin, it made perfect sense to me. So I started the process of learning more about Islam, and then I had a question, because my first Quran was in, was in Arabic and Chinese. And so in our conversations, I asked them about uh, what about being gay and Islam. And they said there was nothing wrong with it because China had had gay emperors and very important people throughout their history. So gay people was not a strange thing. So to be gay and Muslim was not an oxymoron, as many people thought. So I said, well, let me study this and get more involved. And I kept going 
every couple of weeks I'd go to the mosque for the sermons and get to meet people. And I came to find that I really did enjoy the faith, but I hadn't made the conversion at that time. So after that year there, I went on to Taiwan to continue my studies, and it was there I saw the difference between the Islam of China and the Islam that was being taught by the, the Middle East in terms of the Saudis. And I saw very different. The Islam in China was very welcoming, but the Islam that it was uh, being projected there in Taiwan was a very strong, very uh, painful, very wrath and vengeful thinking aspect of what God could be. Mm-hmm. And one thing that was unique is that the, the, the imam's son then returned from Saudi Arabia studying there for the fourth time, and he had been caught having sex with some of the other men there. And so he was sequestered, he was berated, shamed, and things of this nature. And the only sad thing about it is that I never got a chance to tell him that I was also gay. Um, so after continuing two and a half years in Taiwan, I came back to the States, and that's when I did my official conversion uh, to become Muslim. And then nine months later, I was off to the Middle East, and I was in Cairo a year Amman, Jordan, for a year in Damascus, Syria, for a year to continue my Arabic studies. And today I have to say that in some of those places, because of the way in which um, the war has destroyed those civilizations in such a way, that um, when I see pictures sometimes my heart sinks because I have places where I had actually lived or shopped for my food or, you know, without playing with friends, that kind of thing. So it was very touching for me, but in terms of understanding, being exposed to these various cultures and and all of them understanding Islam in from a different light, if you will, I came to understand that Islam takes a shape to every culture, but its tenets, its ethics remain the same. And that's the thing that's the battle that's going on now is the ethics upon which people who call themselves Muslim abide by. So, so for you, the now the journey started young for you, um, and and that's that's a good thing. When did you decide that you were going to change your name? That's one question. Um, you would change your name, but also coming up, you know, in the family, you know, Christian Southern Baptist beliefs, being gay, and then being Muslim. Um, were your parents alive during that time? And if so. What kind of conversations were you guys having? Okay. Well, I went to King High School. So it was, okay. uh, and um, <laughs> when I graduated, we had a, a ritual at my household. My father would, um, when you got your high school diploma, my parents required us to take the, you, you had to graduate from high school. And that mm-hmm. was sort of like the statement of your own man, you know, your own man or womanhood. And if you wanted to go to college, my parents were there to help us do that. So um, I came out of high school right before I turned 16, and so at that time I tendered my high school diploma to my father and told him that I had, you know, abide by his rules and regulations and that this was the requirement and submitted it. And so my parents were very thankful for it. And then in our conversation I told him, and also I wanted to let you know that I'm gay. And so it was a little bit of a shock but not that much of a shock to them. They, of course, back in 19, you know, 69, 
your parents are asking you the question, you know, well, did we do anything wrong? What's the blah, blah, blah? Like, you didn't do anything wrong. Everything is great. And so both of my parents together, they looked at each other and they looked at me and said, well, I want you to know that you have always upheld the standards that we've held for your brothers by having six brothers and then having a sister who's the youngest. And so you abide by those rules and there's nothing wrong with you. And with that, I felt very at ease and at peace. And from there, I moved forward knowing that they supported me. And I think since I was a very outgoing kid anyway and always you know, traveling, going places, doing things, I don't think they saw that me being, that was unusual for me to be outgoing and out there. And so with that uh, process, as I grew a little older uh, and meeting other black, gay and lesbian and transgender people, we got together and started writing a publication. It was called Diplomat Magazine, which we put together. And it was a kind of magazine that dealt with the issues of being black and gay. But it was something that you could throw on your coffee table along with the jet and the ebony because we didn't use um, you know, advertisements and no nude bodies. We talked about political issues, issues of psychology, medical issues, things like that. So my parents were proud. I would come home, and there would be the different magazine several issues of it there on the coffee table with every other magazine. So I knew my parents were very supportive of that, and it made a significant difference. Now, um, and also helped, too, because I did have a couple of relatives later in the 70s and in the 80s come out and they had a supportive family because I had come out so long before them. And I was very happy for that, to see that it made a difference in my family. Now, to respond to your question about my name, well, my Chinese name, um, having gone to China, okay. <laughs> um, I was given a Chinese name. I had a friend there in in, uh, in China, and he wasn't one of the Muslim friends, but another one. And he says, you know, you have a great name but really you should have a better name. And I go, like, well, what name is that? He says, well, your name should be Tang, because Tang is like the, the period of, of literary culture in China, which ran from around 650 to around 950 um, in their um, common era. And it was a great literary period. So Tang relates to that. And then Da Yi, Da means big, and Yi, this particular Yi has the meaning of virtue. So they called me the peaceful man of great virtue. And it's a name that whenever I tell people that, particularly those who are born and raised in the Far East, they go, hmm, great name. So <laughs> I was really honored to have received it. And then when I went into Islam and then decided I was going to take a Muslim name, I used something similar, but also the background behind it as well, uh, Dai comes from the word Dawa, which is the word to proselytize, to spread the word about the faith. And so Dai, he is the, the, the personal association of it, but also a derivative from Dawa. Um, it was a form of the, the same word. So since Dai and Dai were very similar in sound, and the person who proselytizes, I said, well, that sounds like me. And that's why I took that name on. And then Abdullah is the person who is a slave to Allah or a person who follows the path of Allah. And so I became uh, the one who proselytizes in the name of Allah. Hmm. 
Uh, so okay, so you tra- you've traveled to more I know more than like China and so were you only given the two different names or everywhere you maybe traveled to were you graced with a, a different name or? Well, not really, because the, uh, they have a thing in the Far East that uh, the Chinese language, or Mandarin, I can use from Tokyo all the way down to Indonesia. In any of the major cities, I can get along, so I don't have to speak English or speak Arabic in those particular countries where it is. And then the same thing in terms of living in the Middle East and in the Levine, uh, using Arabic. And that, that, that context didn't have to use English. And in today's world, I can go almost anywhere now and walk into a restaurant and hear people speaking Arabic or Mandarin or various things, depending on where you are, and I can just join right on in. So it's, um, uh, but I just think that people do know me. Uh, there are people in China who know me only as Tang Dai, and then there are people in the Middle East who only know me as Dai Bella. Okay. okay. Do you see... Um do you see more openly gay Muslims um, that are coming out, or is there more still more of a fear of uh, being killed, ostracized, and all, all that? Well, yes and no. Um, some years ago, there were people who were coming out. The history is that at least in the West, back in, in San Francisco, back in the in the mid seventies, there were Iranian um, gays and lesbians who were. There it was called the Purple Crescent. It was out in, at uh, Berkeley University, of California, Berkeley. It's where the group originated. And the gentleman that I remember talking to and who talked about it, he uh, died of HIV back, I think, in 2004. But he was a member of the group, and he said that uh, when the Iranian Revolution happened, that this is when a number of them went back because they were sponsored students, and many of them were never heard of again or heard from again. So it appears that the Iranian government had been watching them, and when the students returned back to the country, they were either imprisoned and and or were uh, put to death because of their sexual orientation. Um, so that's the early part of it. But then it, um, the, the other part of the history is that then in the 1990, a fellow by the name of Khaki, who had a group called Salam out of Toronto, and... He started the organization, but because of death threats and people being very frightened, that organization went defunct after about two years. Then it wasn't until 1994 that I, in Washington, D.C., people knew that I was gay and Muslim. And there were several other people here as well that I knew were Muslim too and gay. But it was never a public type of thing. It was only in closed circles. But then 1994, uh, Mohsen Hendricks in Cape Town, South Africa, came out and talked and discussed the issue about being gay and Muslim there. But I also, myself, being here in the United States, that was something that was being known in the gay circles, particularly black gay circles, because of the black pride movement that started in the early 90s as well, and I was part of that here in D.C. So uh, we, Muslim and I sort of have a gentleman's agreement that I was the first one to come out in the Western Hemisphere, and he was the first one to come out in the Eastern Hemisphere. And we worked together for a number of years together in terms of um, dealing with the issue of being gay and Muslim. And it wasn't until 1997, 98, while I was 
actually in Saudi Arabia studying. I'm working for the Evnexpat, working for the Saudi Royal Air, Royal Air Force, which gave me an opportunity to do Hajj, but also to continue my Islamic studies there. Um, that it was during that time that number one, I had a chance to take some courses and study at uh, King Fahad University, but also for me to do research on homosexuality from an Islamic perspective. And it was there that I came to understand that the being gay in Islamic cultures was something that did exist. It was just publicly frowned upon, but it really wasn't anything in the Quran itself that negated the prospect that people can be homosexual because in many references that are there in the Quran and that actually it was the in, interpreters and the cultural, uh, I call them guardsmen or cultural gatekeepers that said that uh, being of sexual diversity was not permissible within Islamic context. Yet, if you look at the history and throughout Islamic history, they've always existed. And those who Challenges say they didn't exist. Their contemporaries challenged them on their particular standing. So there's always been this back and forth on it. But we find that throughout Islamic history, its culture, and also even in its later artwork, these things were um, people of sexual diversity was always there. So it was like it's not uh, people who, who buy the line that it's not Islamic, they're buying into a cultural manifestation of that ideal rather than a one that's based on the Quran or any other context that would be there. Do you find in the Africa, okay, because I know only a handful of African Americans who are practicing Muslims. What, what you know, and I know I was reading once where they were saying like, you know, um, something like 2.75 million Muslims in the country. But how many... Do you know a sense of what African Americans, um, much like you, who who found their way to Islam, who converted? Do you have a sense of what that number is like? I really do not. And the only thing that we there's just a variance on the numbers of Muslims in the United States as well. Uh, quite mm-hmm. often, when it's done, it depends on who's doing the research. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite often. Black Americans are not part of that; those numbers. Mm-hmm. They usually look at immigrants or within the first three generations of immigrants in the United States. They use that as the context. And I think that when they do include African Americans who do identify with Islam in one way, shape, or form, not necessarily NOI, but those who are part of the, the larger Muslim community, um, I think that we make up, depending on the urban areas, we tend to make up uh, to have mosques in those areas. But when we move into the non-urban areas, then we start to see greater numbers of Arabs, East Indians, uh, Southeast Asians, as well as Africans. Mm-hmm. So, and over the last 15 years, we've had a significant number of Latino Muslims Developing, I think the first Latino mosque opened up in Los Angeles this year, or was it last year? One of the two. Mm-hmm. So the numbers have been growing. So there's no real, num- you know, concrete number uh, you can say is the case, because I meet people who are like, you know, I really don't follow the tenants anymore, but I've always 
upheld, you know, the things of Islam. I've always thought about it as, as my religion, things like that. So mm-hmm. you wind up being a mixture of different kinds of people, and I think that just like with Christianity or Judaism, you have your uh, cultural Muslims, you have those who are more uh, religiously identified, and you have those who are more secularly identified, but identified through other frameworks of their Muslim culture and uh, upbringing, if you will, societal upbringing. Yeah, because I know it seems like to me when I think about the people I know who are right now are celebrating Ramadan, like many of them are from other countries, and I can only think of one person who's African American who also happens to be gay. Okay, you know, so okay. I'm mean, so sorry. It's like, yay, you know, and but um, like you said, like, you know, Africans, um, uh, you know, we're in Michigan, you know, we have a large Arabic community, so there are several, a large number of not only Islam, uh, Muslims, but also Christians who are Arabic. But like I said, yeah. I can think of one person who is African-American and who happens to be gay, you know, and... Yes. So, I mean, and actually, I take it back, too. <laughs> I take, I take, you know, so, I mean, and that's, and that's just it. So, you have, where where do they, I mean, do they, because you're saying that, you know, we know that there are some people who, who don't feel, if you're gay and Muslim in America, generally, are you welcome or, or do you have, I mean, for the, if they can't come to be where you are, are they welcome in their mosque and in their communities? Well, I'll have to say say this with a caveat. It depends. There's several things that we have to look at. Back in, in 1996, I believe it was, I'm trying to get my history right, in, in Cape Town, South Africa, um, um what is his name? Isaac. Uh, he's an author. He wrote a book on being Muslim. I think was the title of it. Uh, the 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 mosque in Cape Town uh, became a, had always been a, a, a place of fermentation, uh, dealing with the issue of uh, apartheid there. And um, a number of the Muslims over there come from a Southeast Asian or or um, a Middle Eastern background. And so it was there that one, there was a, a woman who actually started um, hosting prayers there, leading prayers. And, boy, did that cause a major disruption there. But also um, Amina Wadud, who was an African-American um, woman here, uh, ally, who's an LGBTQ ally, and she also wrote the book Woman in Quran, uh, which changed the world in terms of understanding the Quran, because she looked at the Quran from a um, woman's perspective and also a feminist perspective as well. And there were a number of others, too. Um, so I think I've lost my thought now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, and so it was there that a lot of things started to ferment. And then the idea of having mosques where men and women and LGBT and every other kind of people can be included in, in worship. Uh, sort of sprung from there, and then it started to develop and expand over those years. And as we get into the end of the 1990s, 
um, you have a movement in the United States, Faisal Alam, who is a, um, a Muslim of Pakistani background and actually was head of the um, Muslim Students Association at one time. Uh, I'm not sure if he was national president, but he was pretty high up in that, that hierarchy. He sent a text out uh, one day asking the question in the MFA, he said, you know, what about these gay Muslims? and started getting responses from people via email. And that sort of sparked him to develop an organization called Al-Fataha, which is um, the name of the first surah in the Quran, the opening. And it was from there that a real new movement developed in the United States for LGBTQ Muslims. And in 1998, there was a major meeting here, and I was not able to unable to attend that meeting because I had actually just returned to Saudi Arabia to continue my contract there, a teaching contract. But I wasn't put in touch with Faisal and start the beginning of my connection with him. And I sent him my first research on homosexual positive interpretation of homosexuality in Islam. And when my contract ended in nineteen late latter part nineteen ninety nine, and returning back to the states, I joined full-fledged into the Al-Fatiha movement and eventually became the religious leadership or the religious advisor for the organization in the early 2000s. And it's been growing ever since then. And I think that Mm -hmm. through the process of uh, this development, and I have to say with the, the assistance of several other people, some Islamic scholars who are LGBTQ as well, um, We've been able to look at the the text, deliver information that lets people understand the the, the sexual diversity was something that was not uh, oxymoronic to being Muslim. And eventually in the early years of our conferences that were held in other major cities, that um, a book, Homosexuality and Islam, Reflections on Gay lesbian and transgender Muslims by um, Dr. Scott Siraj Kugel, who was a good friend and, and confidant. That book came out in, when was it, 2010, which was mm-hmm. a reflection on the first seven years of the queer Muslim development in the West, which would include Europe as well and South, in Africa, South Africa. Um, and so it's that book, which I think is one of the best reference books that helps a lot of people understand Islam um, in a way in which helps deflect and or dismiss the arguments against the idea of the sexual diversity in Islam. Now, just two other things I want to mention that for people who are Muslim who may be listening and they want some Quranic references, well, then I will uh, tell them there's, if they look at the part that talks about marriage and Islam, one of them in particular, which is the the, the chapter called Nur, N-U-R-N-O-O-R, is how it may be spelled. Uh, that's chapter 24. And the, the, the verses uh, 31, well, 30 to 32 are really the ones that talk. 30 tells men not to gawk at women and to lower their gaze and things of this nature. And then it, uh, 31 uh, talks about women and the men that they don't have to veil before, meaning that their male relatives and people who are close in their family, their brothers and their children, male children, things of this nature, and their mo- you know their mothers' children and son- mothers' sons and 
there because of the way in which marriage is is open there in the um, in Islam, you could have male relatives from two or three different mothers, you know. So you mm-hmm. don't have to veil mm-hmm. because they're because they're they're your relatives. Uh, so there's not a thing that you had to quote unquote cover up before men, those men. And then in that very verse near the back, it says, and men who have no desire for women and children who don't understand sexuality. And so uh, that, there's an indication that some people say, well, that means that there are men who are asexual. Well, not necessarily so. Uh, if they state that they don't have, have no desire for women, then they probably do have desire for men. And that would give you a whole, opens up a whole new flower, a whole new bouquet of understanding there. And then in 2432, there's a very important line that people must understand that when it talks about marrying, it says, marry from the single among you, even if it's from your male and female slaves. Now, uh, what happens is that they put these parathenicals in to to direct your attention in a certain direction, okay? Uh, So they'll say, marry from the single among you, and they'll put in parentheses, male and females, okay? But that's not in the Quran. And since women who were previously married or men who were previously married, as long as they're single, they can get married again. It opened up to all people can be married, even if it's from their dutiful male and female slaves who had become Muslim. And what they had talked about historically from this legal perspective, there was a question, because in the Quran it also says that, that men or owners of slaves can have sex with those who, who they possess with their right hand, meaning that they're under their control. And so there were legal cases that happened throughout the history where males wanted to have sex with males or females wanted to have sex with their female slaves. Mm-hmm. And so the law permitted them to have sex heterosexually. Therefore, they were trying to limit it only to heterosexuals. And the folks were saying, no, that's not what it says. <laughs> so it became a big legal issue as well and continues to be one that is debated today. So the, 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 for them to say definitively that this is the case, it's incorrect. Mm-hmm. You know, so and, and basically, mm-hmm. go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I mean, you know, I mean, because this is some, you know, it's almost, it, actually it's deeper than, you know, than the part where, you know, the one or two verses in the Bible, you know, which, which, which don't say what it is, but that you that you you know, indeed this this climate of not only homophobia but Islamophobia, and here, do you find when you come into gay circles, gay communities, and you're having this discussion? I mean, is it? I mean, do some people go like, you know, well, this is just too much. We just don't want to deal with this, or. How do you how do you how do you navigate this? I mean, I just sort of see like, you know, are you are you there in those circles? Is there that dialogue to talk about? But here is yet another religion, you know, that, that isn't saying that gay marriage cannot happen, that it that it it isn't excluded from religion. How do you how do you work within that conversation? And is there space for you? I mean, are they making space for you to come and just do you find that that supports and bolsters the argument for gay marriage and same-sex relationships? Okay. Um, well, first let me say that uh, it has gotten a whole lot easier over the years. 
And due to the work of, and I'm not just patting myself on the back, but a number of other people, men and women, and also coming from a diverse background of people, scholars and non, that the process of being gay and, and Muslim in many circles, both in Muslim culture and in non-Muslim culture, that the acknowledgement is growing. Now, there, mm-hmm. 15, 16 years ago, uh, to state that one was gay and Muslim was a shock. And when I would show up at these different events with other religious leaders like Elder Troy Perry or Elder Nancy Wilson from MCC or um, mm-hmm. Gene Robinson and various other people from different groups um, or either um, was Stephen uh, Greenberg, who's an um, Orthodox rabbi, we would do different, con- you know, we would be the panel discussions, things of this nature, and the concept of a gay Muslim started to expand in those circles. But still today, you'll go into a religious context, and people are still not, have, may have never met a gay Muslim before. So hmm. those are some of the things. But as more and more people come out and get involved in various different communities, it's becoming less and less when people don't know a, a Muslim. But I think that in the early years, there will be times, uh, this is Gay Pride here in Washington, D.C. this week, and mm-hmm. quite often when I'm free, I'll participate in the religious, interfaith religious service. Um, and that would be when people would, would meet. But if I'm walking down P Street, which is sort of like gay neighborhood here, or gayborhood mm-hmm. as they call it, and I have on my and I have on my Muslim drag, so to speak. Uh, I'm wearing because mm-hmm. I, I tend to be much more orthodox in my religious manifestation in terms of as a as an imam. Um, mm-hmm. Then there are gay people looking. Is this guy going to blow something up? Who is this? Who's this Muslim? Then I'm black too. So who's this? You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> Double mm-hmm. And so there are times when I don't know if I'm disliked because I'm black or because I'm Muslim or because I'm gay in some instances. So I don't let it bother me. <laughs> uh, you know, and I and I guess and that's the part too because you have this particularly from the white gay community that if you're black, well, you have to be a certain type of religion. You have to be like a a Christian religion, um, either. Your Baptist or your AM or whatever, and so I can imagine for them to wrap their head around not only yes you're black but you're not from that. I mean, I can I can just imagine that some of them their head is ready to explode, you know, because <laughs> I was like, well wait a minute, you know, can you, when you go because when they go to you like what are you going to do about your, those bad black ministers and you go like hey I'm Muslim, you know. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't. But when they, when they do come, when with African Americans at a at a large percentage, like you said, there are more people who are becoming, you know, all different religions, and we have all of these different things. How do you? What do you do? I mean, how do you talk about? You know, like yeah, you know, like you said, you don't have a number on how many African Americans are, but this is where some of them and make a safe space for those who are Muslim, to come out? Well, to respond to that, let me give you a little history of my background in terms of Mm -hmm. uh, establishing a mosque. There are places that we refer to as progressive mosques. And, um, Mm -hmm. and for example, in Toronto, 
the Juma Circle, uh, El Faru Khaki and his partner Troy Jackson, and uh, Lori Silvers, actually one of the daughters of Phil Silvers, you know, the comedian Phil Silvers. Um, mm-hmm. and they started an inclusive mosque there. One of his daughters is uh, Phil Silver's daughter is Muslim, and so they and she's a professor at the University Toronto University, I believe. And so they started an inclusive mosque where uh, men, women uh, participate in leading prayers, but also it's an open community where no matter what your background, no matter what your particular um, theological stream that you come from, everyone is welcome there to participate in the prayers. But also you have mosques that were established by Muslims for Progressive Values who have similar tenets. And the mosque here in D.C. originally started off with the El Farouk's um, group there, the Tawheed group, and then um, going along with the MPV, we sort of switched um, connections and went with MPV so that we had several mosques in the United States where people were invited and they could participate. Now, here in Washington, D.C., a couple of years ago, I decided to stop hosting uh, Friday prayers because I felt that the community here in particular, um, some of the people in the gay community were not being supportive of the program. Uh, mm. Although we, I would say probably 25% of our members were um, LGBT community, you know, that part of the community, I had young couples, I had older couples, things of this nature. It wasn't just uh, gay people meeting at the mosque, but uh, issues of geographic location, being here in Washington, you seeing people lived in the northern suburbs in Maryland or in Virginia, things of this nature, uh, became a problem because people had to commute and things of this nature. And so I couldn't get a number of people to be consistent and making certain that the mosque would be open because I, tr- I have a very extensive travel schedule and things of this nature. So I decided that let, let's not continue this and that I would move my energies into a new arena. And with that, we would help build more inclusive mosques in the West and hopefully globally. And the reason why a couple of years ago, um, after I left my position as director of LGBT outreach for Muslims for Progressive Values, I started an organization called Mecca Institute. The mm-hmm. Muslim Educational Center for Creative Academics, and Mecca Institute um, is in the process now of development. And our goal is that in September of 2017, we'll be opening the first inclusive and progressive Islamic chaplaincy program. And the goal is that mm. students that they finish is the master's program, and when students are finished, they would be able to enter the field as a chaplain. Uh, in the military or in private institutions, you know, you have people who are in the prison system, in the military, who officiate for the White House even. <laughs> so those kinds of uh, mm-hmm. positions where people are Muslim, and it would be a person who would be of that particular quality. We would be training them in an inclusive and progressive interpretation of the Quran, which um, is part of what Mecca Institute is developing. And ultimately the goal is to have these chaplains start filling in and opening up inclusive mosques in their neighborhoods, either as study groups or and or as mosques, so that in major areas, as more and more students graduate, we'll be proliferating the idea that you can belong to a mosque that recognizes you for whoever you are and whatever you are and go forward from that particular uh, point of view. 
So uh, Mecca Institute, we have our professors from around the world. And one of the reasons why I got to meet uh, several additional queer Muslim uh, imams, and so it was through their dedication to help build this institute, we're not caught up in the East and West kerfuffle. And our goal is that we could see 20 years from now there may be 100 or more inclusive mosques uh, in the more so in the West, but also maybe in other parts of the world too, and continue to grow. So, just like in the LGBT community, where um, you have lesbians that you know don't accept the trans, you have you know gay men that, that really don't like the lesbians. There's there's rift there um, within the Muslim community and with the different types. Um, <laughs> Have have more of you united, or have more kind of like you know we don't we don't want to go to the gay side we don't want to go and, and worship with them we want to separate. Have you seen more of that or less? Well, I would have to say that we're becoming to see more and more people feeling more comfortable in the concept, meaning that there are people who will come and participate in the services who may not have a history or may not even be gay themselves, but they're comfortable with the idea that they they believe Islam is inclusive and not mm. exclusive as the the, the more, um, and I hate using the term mainstream, but the more uh, common mosques will do. And so, but in many of those instances, women do not feel comfortable in them because they're, they're, they're ostracized or they're sequestered in many instances. Uh, of course, queer people are not uh, welcome, or at least not to be open, that are there. And then also transgender um, individuals, though this is permissible in terms of the um, Shia framework, and now more so in some of the Sunni networks, that the being transgender is a process of uh, gender reassignment, uh, which they support. Many Muslims do support. Uh, they still don't have problems with the the L, the G, and the B part of, of being Muslim. But that's changing, too, as more younger people come into um, their full development, more and more people are accepting. So I've seen, I've seen changes in many mm-hmm. different ways, and even the conversation. Uh, Sixteen years ago, people wanted to say, well, you know, you can't be Muslim and gay too, and I'm like, well, where does it say that in the Quran, or where does it say it in the concepts or legal aspects of things? Since I'm a you know a lawyer and a specialist in Islamic law as well, I said, well, show it to me, and they can't do so. So I know that it's a cultural thing rather than one that they can actually put reference to. And so, as more and more people and other scholars as well, like um, Dr. Ibrahim uh, Sherman Jackson, who who used to head um, a center for uh, Middle East and North African Studies, University of Michigan, has come out in one of his books. I think in 2006 he, or 2008, somewhere in there, he did a video saying, "Yes, a person can be Muslim and they can be gay, but they shouldn't do that sex thing." So <laughs> it started, you know, it's changed significantly over the years. But I think part of it has been due to the the, the scholarship that has been done and the just the plain common conversations that are there, uh, that are being had. I know that in conversations I've had all over the world in different um, networks, uh, there was a place, I was in Belgium one time, and we were discussing things, 
and I was I had to um, explain. So they were talking about well, what about the loot story? What about the Lot story? The story of Lot. And I told them as well. I think that people are missing the information there. That the story is talking about heterosexual men abusing people for the sake of power and control over them, and this was not consenting adults in a in a sexual relationship. Uh, and so some of the people were like, well, I don't understand. I said, well, let's put it this way. The same, if it's a sexual act that you're talking about, a sexual act does not make an orientation because the same sexual act of colitis is the same sexual act that husband and wife does, but also a rapist does to a woman. Mm-hmm. Is your husband a rapist? I said, and then sexually, the same sex of, of passivity and colitis a woman is the same sex as a wife. I said the same sexual act that a prostitute does. All women prostitute. No. Okay, then. Then how is it then that the, a sexual act committed between the same sex then becomes a sexual orientation with someone when it's just a sexual act? Is this a consenting relationship or just one based on power and control and rape and just, you know and and um, and not someone who's consenting to a relationship through love and care and things of this nature? So it helps people understand the context of the, the lot story in a different light. And it's those kinds of stories that really make a difference for people because when you can get them to think outside the box and sometimes even get them to laugh about some of the things, the, the light goes on. And they start mm-hmm. to see it in a very different light. Even though they may not agree with it, they still can understand it from a different perspective. You know, a, a couple weeks ago we had, or, or anyhow, sometime in the past, we had a group of clergy people on who were from Charlotte, and they were talking. And one of the guests oh, yeah. said that, yeah, he said, like, it was time, he said maybe it was time for some traditional churches either to, you know, fail or to just change because they weren't speaking to people today. And it sounds like to me that part of what the Mecca Institute is doing is making it more inclusive for those who might have looked at traditional Islam. Like you said, they, they feel that there's that, that, that connection with the faith, but they don't go to the mosque. And it sounds like to you that that's part of what Mecca, that's part of what their goal is to, is to change those, those thoughts. Yes, very much so. Now, one of my mentors, Dr. Taha Jabra-Alawani, who earlier this year transitioned, I think it was in March of this year, he was my mentor at the graduate school. I think it's called Cordova University now. But when they had their graduate program, I studied under him for almost three, four years. And he's a genius and a wonderful person. And he taught me so much. He was the one who started the women's chaplaincy program uh, back in the mid-'90s here in the northern Virginia area. And this is one of the reasons why you have a lot of women who are now in positions as um, imams and also religious mm. leaders in a number of different places. So what I learned from him I've been able to utilize and to help expand upon it to make it inclusive for LGBT people too now. And so, you know, how you sort of learn something and then you sort of expand it a little mm-hmm. bit more and it becomes more and more inclusive. It's similar to Amanawa Dude's concept of what has happened and how 
the the patriarchy has trained people to understand that is that it's God at top, there's this hierarchy, God at top, man in the middle, and woman and everybody else underneath a man. Okay, mm-hmm. whereas she says no, that's not the way. If you turn it and it's not hierarchical, um, hierarchical, but what you need is that you make it a triangle, and at the top of the the triangle is God, and then to the left you could have women at that that right that or right angle, and then at the other right angle you could have men, and so God is the person. God is the is the creator. Uh, I'm becoming anthropomorphic. <laughs> But mm-hmm. God's there, and then men and women are on equal track. And then I, I looked at it and said, okay, well, then part of that concept is that there's LGBTQ in that, in that, along that same line, so everyone is equal, and no person, no human being is greater than another. And the Quran confirms that, that only by our good deeds and pious is our piousness become greater than another by the good deeds that we do. And that we should strive to do good deeds, not do each other in doing good deeds, and God will bless us all. And so this is part of that concept of expansion. So my understanding of inclusivity means that if you are a believer in the creator, then even no matter what your religious affiliation, you also fall under that rubric of, yes, everyone, Allah loves everybody. It's inclusive. And if we learn mm-hmm. to do that with each other, boy, would the world be a far better place. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those yeah. are parts of the processes. But I do want to say that um, with this growth and development, more and more people, there are now some women-only mosques, which I had only known about in China when I lived there. There were women-only mosques there who were run and operated by women. But now in the U.K., also in L.A., there are two, and there may be three, um, part of the inclusive um, MOSS movement initiative. I think inclusive MOSS initiative is what is IMI. Uh, they do have uh, women-led MOSS now. So it's not just in China, but I think there's one in, in London, there's one in L.A., and there might be one in, in, um, in Paris, but I'm not for certain. I haven't talked to Ludovic in quite a while, so I'm not certain if that got that initiative got off the ground or not. Well, but I know that often I if I when I and even in talking about doing this show, I have people go, Well, you know, they treat women wrong, you know, and, and that's not the case. You know, and even from lesbians it's like, Well, why would you you know, why would a lesbian even consider being a Muslim, you know, because we have a bad enough just being women, and, and they treat it, and, so, and that's not real. That's not the real story. Well, the, 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 that's not the full story. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Because there are months, um, and according to the Pew a report, which was I believe was, done in, was released in 2014, so it may not be as accurate as it would be, but the latest research, it showed that 6% of the mosques in North America, including Canada, Change from being sequestered, women were sequestered to where women are now sharing the main area of space. Mm-hmm. They're still seg- segregated, but they're sharing the same space. So women are not sequestered in the booth in the back, and then they have to get there by going by the garbage can in the back of the building to go up the stairs to the place, and the microphones don't work properly. You know, that kind of uh-huh. thing. So where uh-huh. now they're sharing 
and that and women are participating in the in the program that's there, but they're not still led, they're still not allowed to lead prayers in more of the more orthodox centers. But that's starting to change. So I think that with these new initiatives that have been happening over the last 15 years or so, that probably in a generation or so you're going to see far more of these inclusive mosques, and there will probably be some changes happening in the more orthodox mosques. And I, I hate using the term orthodox mosques because it seems like we're giving authority to them. But in those more mm-hmm. common mosques, you're going to see this thing. But I think that with the change in the oil money and how that they've uh, promoted the Wahhabism and Salafism through oil money, I think that their influence is going to decline over the next decade or so. But time will tell. Time will tell. So if I'm a young person now and I'm listening to you and I'm curious about Islam, where do you go? I mean, where does a young person go now to... I mean, to learn more. You know, it might be daunting to just sort of say, well, hey, I'm just going to check into the mosque and say I want to learn. What what, how, what are the steps that they could go? How do they find out? How do they, where is that safe place where you can go and, and, and start to learn about it? Well, thankfully and there are a number of And don't say in prison. No, no, no. Don't <laughs> <laughs> say you know. Well, I want to, I have something to say about that in a few minutes, but okay. <laughs> but I, okay. I think that many young people, because there are books now and a number of different types of books, both from male and female perspectives and also the LGBT community, that they're that they can understand Islam from a diversity of perspectives. Um, so I think it's important that they go through the the material that are available and to also sit down and read the Quran for themselves because it's important. The Quran encourages people to read it uh, through their, so that their minds and their hearts come to understand its, its meaning, its, its, um, its, its simplicity, but also its, its depth of understanding of our human relationships. And I think that it will help people better understand the idea of what it is as a faith but also that the rules and regulations associated to it are not the difficult ones. You know, society always comes up with, with uh, rules and regulations about different things, but the Quran has very few of those, and that when we understand Islamic history, we understand how some of these taboos in which Muslims believe today came about, not knowing that some of it came from the earlier Judaic understanding of our Creator, and then other parts of it came from the Christian arm of of of, of Abrahamic faith, and how those things mm-hmm. sort of filtered its way into what we call Islam today. And so it's very important that they understand history, you know, the Islamic history too, because it was never this pristine, you know, drop from the sky, everything is perfect kind of you know myth. But it it's, it had a lot of human. Uh, Interactions that weren't always very purity when you had empire building and barbarism as the rule of the of the day, the law of the day. So I think that um, young people should not be afraid of it, but they should enter it with questions that they have on their hearts about things. Have they had what we call ikra, 
it's a term where you, um, when the prophet, when Gabriel came to the prophet, this is how the myth goes, that um, Gabriel came to the prophet, he says, oh, you who are made from a, a clot of blood, meaning the, the coagulation of the, the ziggurat, you who are made from a clot of blood, recite who your creator is. And that recitation is to know who you are inside of you. Have you had that connection with God, which is like in Christianity, go into your closet and be silent and pray. And when God connects you, you're connected, that same kind of idea. And I think young people will find that through their open, opening up to the possibilities, they will find that connection. And with that, as I tell many uh, people, um, who am I to be afraid of uh, what other humans believe when I know my connection to God is so strong? And, of course, you'll get people who will say, oh, well, you know, most Muslims believe so-and-so and so. And I always tell them, I say, do you know that that philosophy, that, you know, the bandwagon, the, num- the numbers game, I said that was true. The prophet would have lost when the Quraysh were fighting him as he was developing the Muslim community in Mecca in the very early nascent period. So numbers don't mean anything, and our prophets throughout the Abrahamic faith, it was always God and the prophet, and the rest of the folks got in line. So it's not because what everybody believes And I think when people mm-hmm. start to understand that better That it's you and God It's you and your creator that you make that connection And that we share that creator with everyone Because I've had people say to me Well you can't do that with my God And I say excuse me You mean our God right? Mm-hmm. 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 You see what I'm saying? Because what they do is they try to claim authority of mm-hmm. what is right and what is wrong. And it's like, no, you don't have that authority. And I'll tell them, I said, well, would you send me a copy of that email? Or will you fax me a copy of that <laughs> note from God, please? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was directed directly to you. <laughs> That's right. Uh-huh. 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 Invite me over to dinner while you're sitting down having that conversation because I want to meet him too. Uh-huh. That's yeah. right. So I'm going to say sometimes we have to show people that they do not control or have power over everybody else. But that it's important that we, as individuals, respect each other, that we can have differences of opinion. And there's nothing wrong with that. Difference actually makes our society better. To know that people differ, you know, differ on different things. But you mm-hmm. cannot say that difference is bad. Difference is a negative. Mm-hmm. And when you mm-hmm. do that, then you're trying to be in power and control over people. And that's when you've overstepped your boundaries. But isn't it too not only the person who's trying to have the control, but the person who lets the person take control? Oh yes, of course. But people are frightened because of well, in particular, and the Islamic faith because it came from a, came from societies that have large have largely been based on tribal and clan associations. Mm-hmm. That the patriarchy of those things generally keep people from speaking out. And, excuse me, in one of my areas of research in Islamic law is that I did um, a thing on honor killings, which is something that you find in some South American uh, tribal groups, native tribal groups, and also in the Levine, where honor killings, where a person who may have killed someone unjustly, then they have the right to kill someone from your tribe. And so through that honor-killing process that if a person comes out gay, 
then they have destroyed the families, the tribal clanish honor, and therefore they will kill the person for the sake of honor. So those are cultural things and not anything that's within the Islamic context of the Quran and or the actual practices of Prophet Muhammad and other prophets even. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it's something that people take upon themselves that they are the authority and as authoritarian, once they have the authority, then they have, then they are the authoritarian, and you're going to do it my way, I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I find that what happens is that through the process of conversation, I've had people even contact me recently say, well, why don't you debate so-and-so and so? And I go, like, I have no time to debate anyone. The time for debate was 15 years ago, and since we now know that it's not necessary, there's really no need for debate. We can have discussions about particular topics. So I'm not going to debate something with you that I already know deep within me that I have a connection with my creator. And you can't change that. That's true. So we keep on rolling. Why debate? Right. Why debate? Uh-huh. Say have a conversation. Right. We can have a conversation and see where we may differ on opinions and things of this nature. That's okay. But... You can't tell me what is and what is not. You know, I had a young man say to me one time, he contacted me via email, right? And so we talked on the phone, had several conversations. And then one day I sort of got to him and he says, but you can't do that. You can't do that. I said, excuse me. I said, you may not understand how it can be done, but don't say you can't do something because you're saying now that other people have convinced you that this is the way it is when you I'm challenging you to, to take a different look at it. And when he did, he came to realize that what he had understood before was not the truth. So I tell people, well, when, when, once you find that something is not true, then you let that go and you fill it in with something better. And killing somebody, wanting to hurt someone or to sequester them is not the answer to making it better. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to throw out there real quick, um, and you you can comment, or you can be like, mm, no. Donald Trump. Let you go for it. <laughs> oh, well, Donald Trump, is, I, you know, I see this as a, I really, I'm not really trained in politics, but I do know that the, the importance of voting is something that comes from the civil rights movement. And the number of people from the time I was a little kid and when King came to Detroit and had the march and stuff, I was one of those kids that was in that march. And so I know the importance that a lot of people died for that right to vote. And I don't care if it's Donald Trump or anyone else out there, we have the right to vote for who we choose to vote. And I, I hold those who don't do so, if some, if said Donald Trump become the president and reverses a whole lot of things, it's your own fault. Mm-hmm. Because you have the right to do so, and you should promote that right um, to do it, and that I encourage you to do so. Now, in terms of what Donald Trump has said and all these different things, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dean Obeda, but he has um, um, an XM radio program. And he also, I think he writes for CNN and and the Daily Beast, too, I think. Um, 
Obaid and I were on a program last week with the Aspen Institute here in Washington, D.C. last Wednesday. And Obaid, I think his, his commentaries are very direct and straightforward that uh, they talked about Donald Trump and some of his issues concerning Muslims or a Muslim judge would not be able to um, able to um, actually adjudicate his particular uh, situation with the university or if a person is Mexican or if they're black. You know, he has all these different things, and I just sort of just step back and say, okay, now we see what's going on in front of us. We can either believe it as something that has the potential to do harm, or we can ignore it to our um, peril. And I think that people need to get out. I don't let any of the things that he says really deter me because I know better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's one thing is that when you have an education and you ignore it, you're a far better problem. This is when King talks about though it's not the people who do wrong, but it's those people who remain silent. In the face of all of this, of adversary, you know, in the face of uh, of difficulties or seeing people in difficulties, it's their issue, and they're the ones who need to uh, really think about what they're doing and allowing to happen. And I think the same thing is is that process of uh, Trump, and this in that part too. And since you asked, I have to throw another side. Um, I was very supportive of Bernie in the very early period, but I know now. That and I don't know all the information that will come out later, you know, what type of subterfuge and all those kinds of things that happen in politics, um, that it's now time for us to join together and to make certain that Donald Trump does not win. Mm-hmm. Supreme Court justices, issues of our Thank social you. security, uh, you know, things, and so many other issues are so far important. If, though, if, you're, if you don't have privilege... And I'm going to put this across the board for people of color as well. If you don't have the money to sit this one out, you better go out there and vote. Mm-hmm. That's all there is to it. Now, I, I tell you, if I have to leave this country, I got about six other countries where people have already told me, if you need to leave the U.S., just get a plane. Come on here. <laughs> not everybody has that option. So I'm saying to you that if you're not willing to stay here and fight the battle or willing to get up and fight the battle, then, you know, the thing that they had, I can't remember the name of the movie a number of years, back in the 90s, I think it was, where it showed um, Muslims being put into concentration camps. Mm-hmm. You remember The Siege? Was that the name of it, The Siege or something? I think so, yeah. Yeah, that's not too far-fetched, people. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm just saying uh, that we have to, we have to be out there. So I have, like I said, I know a handful of people, okay, and one of the other people who converted in college, who's also originally from Detroit, is Congressman Keith Ellison, who's now in Minnesota. Okay. Do you work with him? Do you ever get a chance to work with him? And I know that he came from, I think that he he was here when speaking. I know that he was raised Catholic. He's got, I think, a brother who's another denomination, and here he is, a Muslim, you know, and do you get to work with him? And you know, between you and him, I mean, here are two very high-profile for me African American Muslims. And what's your relationship like with him? And do you two ever talk about it, or you know, about where do you take it? Where do you where do you um, take? 
Well, yes, I am familiar with Keith, uh, with Congressman mm-hmm. uh, Ellison, and have mm-hmm. known him, I think, since 2004. And um, mm-hmm. there was a um, LGBT um, Capitol Hill situation, I think. I remember, was it 2004 or was it 2006? Somewhere in there. And um, I had a chance to meet him then. But he's always been very supportive of me, even in the early years, uh, when uh, more um, mainstream uh, people were like, well, why are you, you know, that guy's a, you know, he's he's not a real Muslim and that kind of thing. He's like, no, that's not true. So he's always been very supportive in, in that instance. You know, Keith always stands out, and I'm very happy because he's also supported LGBT uh, that's rights right. in Minnesota mm-hmm. as well as nationally. So he's always been very supportive, and I've always supported him as well. Um, I've been up on Capitol Hill on several occasions when he's had, when he's hosted things, and I've um, I haven't done given any testimony, but I've been there as a as a person in support mm-hmm. um, for the different meetings and things of this nature. So yes, very much so, and I think that Keith has Keith and Andre Carter Carson, I'm sorry Carson Congressman Carson have their finger on the pulse. Mm-hmm. of what's going on in America. And I think that as Thurgood Marshall, who I met when I first entered law school, um, I was in the Clio program, and he was a speaker at the Georgetown University Law School, and I had a chance to meet him. Um, I must say that there's so many things that he had a pulse on the law, and he even said at that time that he felt that the law, um, the, the, the Texas case, um, the sodomy case, he felt mm-hmm. that he had ruled incorrectly on that. So I heard him say with his own mouth, in his ears, own words, that he was sorry he had ruled in, you know, against the people in that case, but that now those things have changed. So I think that Keith and Andre do have a pulse on what's going on in America and as it's developed into a more inclusive pot of all kinds of people here and that Muslims are growing and developing. But I do want to say, too, that Keith and, and Andre also talk about the difficulties, and more younger people are helping in this regard, but the racism within the Muslim community, too. Mm-hmm. It does exist. It has been, it's thick. Let me tell you, it's thick. <laughs> it's like, it's like uh-huh. sometimes, okay? I've had people uh-huh. say to me, well, because your family hasn't been Muslim long enough, that you really don't know anything about being Muslim. I'm like, but aren't scholars the ones who get trained like I have been? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's that kind of thing where people use cultural references um, to associate or to make themselves appear bigger and better. You know, but as my mom used to tell me all the time, no matter what the product, there's always new and improved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and, and often, if you look at Malcolm, I mean, you know, it was like, it's like this journey, you know, and where he was at the end of his life and his relationship with Islam was different than I think even he ever thought about going. It's Life is a journey, you know, and, 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 you know, like you said, God doesn't suddenly go one day, well, here you go, you got it all, you know, you got it all, just like the work that you're doing with Mecca. The challenge is, you know, your your assignment has been to to have this think tank to make it more inclusive to to study it and do it. So you know, like, so you haven't been in there long enough. Well, what does that mean? It means, you know, what does that mean? 
You are on mm-hmm. that path. You are on that journey. You know. You might Absolutely. not get there, but but you're but you're laying the the framework that for others to go on that journey. Inshallah, okay. I, I think that's the case. I did a TED talk um, a little over a year ago, and in that talk, I I asked people questions in it. You can find it on my net website. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's located there. Uh, that's Dai, my first name, D-A-A-Y-I-E-E dot net. You can find it there. And I asked people two questions. I said, if you don't believe that uh, things should be, uh, you know, there's a modern interpretation of how we live life today, where did they park their camels when they came to the to the event? And then I leave them with the question that 150 years from now, I'm certain that human beings will be on other planets and asteroids and stuff doing whatever they're going to be doing, you know, mining or whatever, or developing other um, places for humankind to explore the universe. And I said, and I'm, I'm certain there will be Muslims there. So my question to you is, which way is Kaaba from that planet? Hmm. Of course, many people... And, you know, look at me with a, uh, you know, with eyes like leaning forward, what's the answer, what's the answer? And I tell them, I don't know. But I'm certain the Muslims of that time, 150 years from now, will have an answer that will satiate and, and respond to their needs. Yeah. Therefore, yeah. Muslims cannot tell me that the prophet 1,500 years ago knew everything about what's going to go on for the rest of human time. Okay. Sorry. It was it was mm-hmm. the Quran was delivered in a social in a certain historical context and those things that relate to human beings because human beings seem like we don't change too much <laughs> but mm-hmm. some of those same concepts can relate to how we live in our lives in modern days with some adjustments but those are the tenets those are the, the ethics that we have to work with we cannot decide that. They did it that way a thousand years ago. We should still do it the exact same way today. Well, no, I disagree. And so a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, those people, human life will have, still have those challenges, but the Quran will also have answers for those people then as to what their hearts are like and how do they use their minds to bring peace to everyone, both themselves and others. And I'm glad you said that. And as Nina, and as Nina Simone would say, and that's it. <laughs> you said that. <laughs> <laughs> but wow. isn't that Mississippi Goddamn? It was, wasn't that her song where she uses that line at the mm-hmm, end? Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. But it's so true, you know, even not, not just with the crime, but with, I mean, the Bible and everything else, how people are like, well, it said here, okay, are they talking about, um, let's just say, 3000 B.C., or are you talking about 2016? Mm-hmm. It, you know, don't you think the life changed, things situate? You think back then they had drive-bys? Hmm. You, you know, mm-hmm. So, it's, you know, you think about you think back then, did they have a lot of the social issues or problems that we have right now? Probably not. So but they had different issues. Word for word. Right, they had different yeah. issues. So that mm-hmm. was based on their issues right then. Yes. And people are, are real Absolutely. quick to say, well, you know what, what, it says this and this and this. How many times have they been copy- copywritten? Mm-hmm. 
If it's been copywritten, who wrote it? Who changed it? Mm-hmm. Who <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I, I think people, if we learn to accept that there are many different paths, and I think in the Bible as well, and we're going back some decades now since I've studied the Bible in that in that level of interest, <laughs> that um, that there are many pathways or many houses or many ways, you know, pathways into getting into heaven, so to speak. And so if that's true, then it means that there's no one way. There's no one anything, but there are many different ways in which the one can be achieved. And I think this is one of the the issue that's very important, that all of us who call ourselves uh, believers in the, something bigger than who we are, that uh, that we're much more conscientious to know that for a particular culture in a particular place in a particular context, the answer may be different than in my particular time, in my particular place, geographical location and context. Yet, the answer can be good for all of us looking at those, taking into consideration all those other factors. Mm-hmm. And this is something that within Islam they have different schools of thoughts, like you have, you know, Catholics, Episcopalians, you know, Baptists, Southern Baptists, Evangelical. But similarly in Islam there are different schools. And each of those schools had different frameworks because of the culture that they derived from. So, um, for example, Hanafi was one of the earlier schools of thought in terms of theological schools, but then when that um, later, we're talking in the 800s, but then, I'm sorry, in the 700s, but then when you go into the 800s, there's some new ideas that come out, and then you start having things of Shafi, which is another school. And then you had other schools that were developing, the Maliki and things of this nature that happened throughout time. And all of them were located in different places. One is in Mecca today, or Medina, in Saudi Arabia, but then you have another one that was in where Kufa would be similar to where um, 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 Baghdad would be today. But also Damascus was a center for Islamic learning in the very early period. So you just had different places and how the different schools derived from different cultures. So I'm going to take you, uh, and we you had said you were going to talk about this, but I think back in the day, <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. yes, I want to find Linwood because in looking for myself as a black person, there was something in the message of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and even Farrakhan were talking about self-determination, having businesses, and there was a whole lot of other stuff that I didn't totally buy into. But there were certain things that happened, you know, that, that, that spoke to me. Of course, my father said, well, you know, they've all been in prison. <laughs> and even now, I find when I talk to people and I say, well, you know, there are African Americans who are following the Islamic faith and who are Muslims and and I know I said it jokingly, but I have had people say, "Yeah, they're all in prison. That's why they don't have anything else to do." But because they're in prison, so they become they become Muslims. And then from that, some people have gone off into the whole thing that now they're becoming radicalized Muslims, and they're going to come out of prison, 
and go on jihad and be terrorists and all like this. Okay. You said you were going to go circle back to that. Okay. Okay. Here well, we let are. me talk about that. <laughs> all right. Here we are. Now, mm-hmm. um, in terms of that, I think that many people misunderstand um, in a lie in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, Forty years ago, 50 years ago, um, that was the area in which many members of NOI, not all, but a number of those members did come out of the prison system. Now, we can discuss if they were put there unjustly or not. That's another issue. But that's they did another, come out that's of that another milieu. Show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> However, um, through that process, they did help a lot of people. And when you do the research, you find that NOI, uh, the people have a very low recidivism rate of going back to prison. So they, they did do a good job during the time that they had a, a higher profile, if you will. Mm-hmm. However, in today's um, world, there are many of those children and grandchildren of those people who were in a lie. A number of them followed Warf Dean into the, Nation, the, the North American Muslim Association, much more orthodox in this, or, this organization, and their children wound up going to Islamic schools with other Muslims from other, other backgrounds. And so now you have a large number of African-American, Latino, and um, various other Native, and even Native American um, people who are intermarrying with other Muslims from around the world because they've all gone to school together. They've, you know, they're in college together, various types of things. And just like at the time of Prophet Muhammad, that those different groups of those growing community of Muslims, Jews, and Christians, and pagans who lived in Medina, they all supported each other, and their children got married, fell in love and got married. And the same thing is happening today. So what people call Islam today is a very different thing than it was several decades ago. Now, in terms of this media promotion, um, and I think too many people follow fake news, or was that was that Saul or Fox? Well, you know, anyway, in this myth, and it is a myth, it's a media myth, that all Muslims are alike. And I've, I've had to talk to a couple of them, and I tell them, I said, are all white people alike? I said, y'all Thank come you. from a very diverse group of people in Europe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I said in other places where you may have congregated here in North America, things of this nature, I said, but all of y'all are not alike. Y'all have a diversity. So then Muslims also have that ethnic and cultural diversity. So that's the I said, you even have white Muslims here in, mm-hmm. in places where whites dominate. And I said, but the, the thing is that you're trying to say that because most Muslims statistically are people of color, then this is a, uh, the continued attack against people of color because they're not uh, laying down to the, the, the white supremacy, the colonialism that, has, that changed the world, you know, several hundred years ago. And these are some of the things that uh, people have to recognize that this is bigger than just, you know, uh, sound bites that people mm-hmm. are making, and they really need to do some research and understand that the Islamic faith is much bigger than just those 
particular frameworks that were developed through the idea of Hollywood and the political framework uh, that led us up to the beginnings when Obama became president. Thank you. And those things. So it's really important that people learn about that because in the movie frame, in the 1970s we started having in the movies, out of Hollywood, the dirty era, the nasty era, the lascivious era, oil money, this and that, doing all types of stuff. Then we came in with Arnold Schwarzenegger and and what's that other guy? Um, um, oh, you know, whatever the number of them, you know, blood. superhero Sylvester guys. Stallone. Yeah. Yeah, Sylvester Stallone and some of the mm-hmm. other ones who were now mm-hmm. the super, you know, the superheroes going to get those bad Muslims and things of this nature. And sometimes when I'm listening to, you know, you see these moving, they're not speaking Arabic, they may be speaking Urdu, they may be speaking Afghani or Farsi or something of this nature, and they're not really Arabs. <laughs> It's, you know, it's, it's a game. It's a, it's, a, it's a promotion. And the thing is that people believe these things so they've never been exposed to people. They've never been exposed to those cultures because they've never left the United States or never been to that part of the world. And I think they miss a lot in the human interactions that are so important. Let's go back to the thing of, of, of uh, Muhammad Ali. You have to talk about him for a minute. What uh-huh. he did in terms of developing understanding of the United States about being Muslim, went from NOI to Sufism. And that, that that's crossing a great path or, or a wide swath of, of understanding to do that. But through his life, it was his, what, 50-some years of being Muslim, that his framework is that he came to grow and develop and understand that Islam was not what NOI had taught him to be, which was based on race, to being something that was based upon the heart and the thinking mind. Mm-hmm. And I think this is very important that people understand that, that all faiths, and I say this as a general rule, that all faiths tend to lead people to deeper understanding and deeper respect for other human beings. And if we keep working with that general rule, general principle, I think we're going to move away from this fake news media promotion that helps the military-industrial complex here in the West and in Europe as well and change the way in which we, we interact with each other as people. At least that's, that's part of my prayer. Well, I mean, you, you have to think about that too because, I mean, it really does that that – picture that they're putting, even when you see how in Europe, how, you know, they don't want to let immigrants in, and you go like, okay, well, who, which, which immigrants don't you want to look at? And that whole thing, like, well, everyone's from the Middle East, everyone's going to be a terrorist, you know, and, and that blanket fear of fear that they're using and not really understanding not the opportunity for us to grow as human human beings by understanding, you know, the differences and the beauty of different religions. I mean, when you look at, as people really get to study different religions outside of a Judeo-Christian, there is beauty, there is wisdom. I mean, some of the things that are said in the Quran go back a lot further than 
than the Bible, and it's beauty, and the way that the words are are beautiful, and they make you think. And it's an opportunity for us to grow. Yes. Well, one thing I want to throw out there is that for most Westerners, they need to understand that the large the, these terrorists, ISIL and um, um, what is it, um, Boko Haram, Boko Haram, and, yeah, yes, and various other groups, these these um, uh, organizations that are at odds with more orthodox Islam, they're killing more Muslims. They've killed thousands more Muslims. Mm-hmm. Killing each other, and rarely are the Westerners attacked. Not to say this is not this has not happened. That would be a lie. But when you start considering the numbers of people who have been attacked by these, I refer to them these individuals, or you know, madmen, mad women, uh, who who believe in a certain way that Islam is supposed to be lived. We start looking at that. We see that the vast majority of the people who suffer are Muslim. For example, mm-hmm. in Paris, when the explosions happened in Paris and the number of people, a couple hundred people who died there, in, um, I think in Baghdad and in Istanbul and I think someplace else, and within a couple of days, about five times the number of people were murdered by Muslims. Muslims were murdered by those same kinds of people. So I just think it's uh, important that we keep this in context to understand I don't agree with it, I think that those individuals don't understand Islam in its truest form, and it's a political framework, but that many more Muslims continue to die, uh, you know, around the world than people in the West uh, in terms of those who have been attacked and things of this nature. So um, it's, it's better to see reality than it is to keep believing in a myth and then being misled and down a, a primrose path. Mm-hmm. I mean, because when you stop and you think about the girls who were abducted by Boko Haram, Muslims. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, who is it? Um, a young lady, Malala, who was shot in the head. But guess what? Muslims. You know, like Muslim. you said, so instead of just being like these sound bites of going like, oh, that's horrible, and then we move on, and we're so caught up in in our little BS lives, you know, that, that, that the number of Muslims who are being killed in these conflicts and overthink. I mean, where's the outcry for that? What are we doing about that? Other than trying mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, build walls, fight immigration, and look at a side eye with anybody who who might not be Christian, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, one thing I want to say um, to um, to the, the listening audience, I would like to encourage that more. Black people need to get out into the world, go to places, and and to prepare to do those things, study a foreign language, save some money, buy $50 shoes rather than $250 shoes, save and go somewhere and study and get exposed to people. I will tell you that this will change how you see the world, and you will better understand how you can place yourself within the world in a different light, because those same things that our mamas and daddies taught us about, thank you, if you will, please, and I'm sorry, and all those things work everywhere, because everybody's got mamas and daddies, okay? (laughs) And I have, as a black man, been welcomed into places 
where you probably wouldn't meet it. Many of my white classmates in these places where I did study abroad never mm-hmm. got exposed to the things that I as a black man or as a person of color got exposed to. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that I'm in I'm I'm in uh, downtown Taipei, and this is before I, I actually really became Muslim. Um, at, at some of the you know the, the special places where only the Chinese go, you know, <laughs> I just mm-hmm. see a white face there. But I was up in there, and a couple of other folks. There was the East Indian guy who was there. There was an the African guy that was there. You know, basically there's different people that mm-hmm. you wind up in places where folks of color interact with you as other people of color. And so we can get a lot exposed in that way. Now, I'm working on a book with a gentleman who's a Chinese Malay. He's Christian. He's also a gay mm-hmm. minister. And we're discussing, since I've lived in his culture and speak his language, he's lived in the U.S. the last 14 years and as a minister here with MCC. And we've been writing a book on us both being gay lead, religious leaders. And one of the things that we're able to do with this, since I know his history and speak his language, we can connect with each other before colonialism and modern times. Mm-hmm. And the results, because, you know, China and Africa were associated many thousands of years ago and had been for a long period of time. But if we look at Western history, that doesn't exist. Yet you go back to Chinese records, you go back to African records, and you find seeing these connections with different people over the centuries, the millennium. And so it's important that we start reclaiming our existence in the world as people of color and recognize that one out of every ten people is white. So why are we out there in the world being who we were a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago? We shouldn't be afraid. You know, I think, you know, that was really, usually we ask, you know, what's the important message that you've given? I think that that, you really nailed it. I mean, you know, to start to recognize that we are part of that greater diaspora, that there's we're more than just Pookie on the west side or, you know, JJ on the south side. You know, we're part of, of this this place. And, you know, I would encourage everyone to get a passport and start traveling because there's something about being in a place where most of the people are people of color. And you know, yes. and you 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 recognize that you're the minor the minor, majority. You're not just like marginalized like you are here. But so, can you? What's next for you? Because we're get, coming to the end of our show. Can you tell us what we should watch for? What we should be looking at? What's coming with Mecca? And before we say good night, can you tell us that? Well. Um... I haven't had any recent vision. <laughs> I can't tell you that part. Mm-hmm. But um, I do have a very strong inclination. And this is something that I wrote to um, uh, the local NAACP here in the D.C. area. I wrote a letter saying that I hope that people, that you're working to help people get registered because they've been doing things to keep people from registering. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to pay for a state ID. You have to do that. I said, are you collecting, getting people to give money to help those people who need to get those things? Because we can't wait till the last minute to get it done. So I hope that many people have worked towards getting prepared and and are ready, willing, and able to vote in November. I just think it's so very important that we do that because I am very 
um, I'm not afraid for, but I'm concerned that a number of people may wind up based upon sometimes bad decisions that they made in the past can come back to haunt them in this situation. Particularly, I don't want to see black babies suffering. I don't want to see mm-hmm. older senior citizens who have given a lot suffering and that we need to let go of this this materialism because I don't care, you know, I, I don't even watch the, although a lot of people say they like the show, what is it called? Um, the Black Dynasty show. What's the one that's the with uh, Cookie and all of that. What's the name of that show? Oh, Empire. Empire. I said all of that is nice. It's you know everything is cool, but all of that is not worth anything. Like the Bible and Quran says, all that stuff will turn to rust and blow away in the you know in the in the wind. What lasts is how you influence people in their hearts, and I would encourage people to vote their hearts and to care for each other better. Mm. And that's it. <laughs> wow. That's hey, and that is, that, that is that is it. And I, I want to thank you. As always, you know, I always enjoy talking to you. I mean, I know that I can't tell you every how many people come up to me from Detroit and like, yeah, we're going to be listening because, you know, we've known him since way back in the day. And, um, <laughs> you know, I am so yeah, grateful to have you on the me, show. I'm certain. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But thank you again for being with us. We will always find time to have you on. Of course. All right. Well, look forward to talking to you again and and continued uh, peace and love to everyone. Thank you. All right. Mm -hmm. Good night. Good night. (laughs) So, Terry. Wow. Yes. Hello. Yeah. Hello, hello. Yeah. yeah okay. I mean, I, he's just, just, you know, and, and, and really, that part, I mean, you see all the places he's been, I think that's just like, yeah. it is. There is something nice about leaving this country and being someplace surrounded by people of color, you know, mm-hmm. and you're all different shades, but you're all some shade of brown. It's just something beautiful about it. So, wow. Wow. So, Terry, we made it through another week. We definitely did. Definitely uh-huh. did. So we'll have a surprise for next week for everybody. So just, you know, watch that Facebook page. Uh, this time, uh-huh. Michelle, I'm going to give me some rest this weekend, I promise. <laughs> well, I'm getting ready to hit the road. I will be in South Carolina um, and be back in time for next week's show. But, so. well... Folks, I know those of you who are disappointed um, with the way it looks like, you know, the Democratic Party is, but don't decide to stay home. You know, your alternative is not, you know, some third-party candidate who doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell, and it certainly isn't to go and vote for Donald Trump. If you believe in the revolution and you want to start it, you got to keep the work going. And in order to keep the work going, it's important that the Democratic Party keeps the White House, gets back the Senate, get back the House of Reps, and make those Supreme Court decisions. And there's only one candidate who can do that for us now. Well, so register want, and vote. Right, right. And for those who don't want to vote or those who talk about um, 
especially the older, you know, seniors and maybe even the younger ones, but mostly the seniors, just remember one song, and it's the one song that people march to, We Shall Overcome. We still have that overcome. And if it goes away, people are like, well, we would never get back to slavery. Don't ever say never. Because you never, because you never know. So don't ever say that if nothing could never happen, and that would be the the disaster of this this whole supposedly United States. You know. So on that note, we're gonna say good night. We're gonna get you ready so you can go ahead and hit the road. I'm gonna go ahead and get some sleep, and uh, we will okay, see you Terry. same place, same time next week. She'll have a safe trip. Same place, same time. Okay, same place, same and time. I'll find a disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sounds oh, good. <laughs> uh, okay, well, until next week, Terry. Bye bye. Next week, Michelle. Bye bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.